as Christians, are we called to a love of the Bible, or are we called to the Bible of love? Now, for some of us, this may be a very difficult question to hear. When I first heard it, I was severely challenged, even at some level scandalized that a Christian would even ask such a question. But as my journey of faith has gone on, as I've studied more and more of the scriptures and of our Christian faith, I am more convinced of the absolute necessity that we should be asking ourselves this question. And our text today, I think, offers some insights into a possible answer. Now, I know many of us, the story of the Good Samaritan probably one of our earliest memories if we went to Sunday school or catechism. We hear plenty of preachers refer to it and teach on it. I've taught on it in depth myself here at Cana, and it remains a very popular story. I think the story has staying power with us because we have mostly understood it as a relatively innocuous tale that, while a bit challenging, never really convicts us too deeply. I mean, we all learn that Jesus tells the story to stress the fact that everyone is our neighbor, and if we meet someone in need, we should do everything we can to help them. And we also learn that helping people may cost us something because the Good Samaritan actually used his own money to take care of this poor beat-up guy. Listening to the story in its simplest form, we also get the idea that the priest and the Levite were cold, and inconsiderate people, and we know we would never be that cold to someone in need. Well, unless they have a flat tire on the side of the highway and it's pouring rain out and it's cold and we're late, then we're usually just like them and we keep going at 65 miles an hour. But other than that, while we might not always live up to the ideal of being a good Samaritan, we come pretty close, therefore the story remains a favorite of ours that we love to hear and we love to retell. But what if there is more to the story than meets the eye? And what if all those lessons really were never the point of Jesus telling the parable in the first place? Remember, when we read the Bible, we need to be careful not to reduce it to a textbook or reduce life to a science book. We need to remind ourselves that the words written were written in a real time during a real experience by real people. Remember, this, this wasn't suddenly something someone found in whole that had been expressly delivered by divine UPS. And these times and experiences of the people that wrote this book were radically different from our middle-class American time and experience. And if we're really going to glean insight and truth and wisdom from Scripture, we need to, as best as we can, enter into the moments, the context of these stories. We need, I think, to ask God, to ask the Holy Ghost, to help us be in the story. For we can't remain outside of these stories of Scripture and make judgment calls based on our own worldviews and our own life experiences. So, the story begins with a scribe asking Jesus a question. Now, remember, a scribe, as the NIV 
helps us understand the scribe better, calls him an expert in the law. A scribe is someone that is an authority on the Torah. And the Torah can mean the entire Hebrew scripture of the Old Testament. It can mean the first five books, the Pentateuch, or it can mean the law portion within the first five books. So he's an expert on all of these things. Jesus answers with a question. Well, what's written in the law? Okay. So this guy had obviously been listening to others, and he answers with the Jesus creed. Maybe he came to Canaan once. So his answer is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, and all your mind, and all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus gives him the thumbs up. Nice job, buddy. Good work. You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But here's the where the story takes a very interesting twist. And we need to grasp it. The scribe asked Jesus another question. But he wanted to justify himself, so he said, well, who's my neighbor? But if we read closely as the scene plays out, this is not at all what the scribe was interested in knowing. See, Jesus was usually pretty direct when he was asked a direct question. Read the Gospels closely. He gets asked a direct question. He just answers it. So if this was a simple, who is my neighbor, I think Jesus would have said everybody, end of the conversation. But Jesus would often use parables and questions when he perceived there was an underlying agenda. And he already knows this guy has an agenda. That's why the first question he asked was answered with a question, right? He knows he's got an agenda. In this case, Jesus tells a parable which helps us understand the scribe's question better. The scribe, as a devout follower of the law, was really asking, who is pure? Who can we love safely based on their purity? Who can we love safely based on their purity? Okay? So now, Jesus tells the parable. The law is always discussing purity. We have to understand it. And this parable speaks directly to it, which is why we need to be very careful here. When we judge the Levite and the priest as uncaring and heartless persons, we are completely missing the facts of this parable. Completely. Because we haven't put ourselves into it yet. So, here's a couple references from the law. The one who touches the corpse of any person shall be unclean for seven days. It's a big deal. That's a lot. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say to them, a priest must not make himself ceremonially unclean for any of his people who die. So, to help you understand this, by law, You cannot handle a corpse or you will become unclean. And the priest just simply couldn't. Period. End of story. <clears throat> and to read the law carefully enough is to understand that the law suggests that if you even were to get close enough to a corpse that your shadow fell on it, you would become unclean. So now to understand that, now, do you get why the priest and the Levite ran to the other side of the road? 
Does it make more sense now? <coughs> These men were not being heartless and uncaring. And they were not even, as we were led to believe in Sunday school class, running in case the robbers were still behind the rocks. They were protecting their purity. That's what they were doing. Every Jewish person standing there listening to this exchange between Jesus and this scribe would have understood that. They would have not judged the priest and Levite in the story as uncaring. Instead, they would have recognized them as obedient and faithful Jews. Men in love with the Torah. But, in loving the Torah with strict obedience to the letter of the law, they were really not obeying the heart of the Torah that says, love your name. Now this story isn't quite so safe for us anymore, is it? Many of us love the Bible. Even when that love of the Bible makes us act in direct contradiction to the heart of the Bible. Love God, love us. And remember, I'm not the one who said the heart of the Bible is love God, love others. Jesus, who we believe was God in the flesh, said that. This is the heart of the Bible. Love God alone. So, how can we take this then and apply this to our lives? Well, C.S. Lewis said, it is a very small step from excluding to exclusivity. And I think what Lewis meant was the truth by its very nature can exclude, but believers in truth should not become exclusive. So here's an example. Christians believe adultery is wrong. I think it's pretty clear. The Bible is very clear on adultery. So we believe it's wrong. It is, as St. John wrote, lawlessness. It's a sin. That truth excludes any other opinion about adultery. It just does. It, it's wrong. So that excludes any other opinion about adultery. However, that does not mean that we Christians need to stop excluding adulterers or stop associating with everyone who does not agree with us on this subject. And this is vital to understand. This is one of the main applications of the parable of the Good Samaritan for our time and our place and our stories. When we are exclusive, we cannot possibly obey the greatest commandment. We can't. How can we love someone who we will not even associate with because of their supposed lack of purity? Or their very real lack of purity? How can we do it? Now, do you see how radical and blasphemous this simple little childhood story is? If not, let me help. The neighbor who Jesus is pointing to for this Jewish 
authority on Scripture is the Samaritan. It's not the beat-up dead guy on the side of the road. That's what we wanted the story to be. So we could feel good about helping the beat-up dead guy. Jesus was not pointing to him as the neighbor. He was pointing to the Samaritan. And oh, by the way, Jesus says, Mr. Scribe, authority on Scripture, perfect observer of your faith, imitate him. If you don't know, Samaritans and Jews hated each other. Samaritans were completely outside the kingdom of God. So, to help you understand another reason Jesus got crucified and what this story is really saying, this is Jesus in the flesh showing up in our world and looking at us and saying, Oh, Mr. Evangelical Fundamental Christian who knows the Bible so well and who lives a completely moral life, see that Muslim over there helping someone imitate him. And what would we do with that? I think we probably crucify Jesus Christ as blasphemous and having nothing to do with Christianity. I found this on a search website where people can ask questions about certain cities that they're hoping to move to. Oh, sorry. Let me just finish up what I was saying. See, this was supposed to be here. Jesus said, who's the neighbor. The Jew couldn't, the Jewish man couldn't even say the Samaritan. He said the one who had mercy on him. Couldn't even speak the name Samaritan. Just like many Christians can't speak the name of other religions. And Jesus said, well, go and be like him. This is not a little childhood story. This should make us cringe when we read this story. So I saw this in news, in, on, online. My husband's job might be transferring him to the Lexington area and we are looking for a nice Christian neighborhood to live in. This was, this was a real thing. She got an answer. She got a real answer. There was a neighborhood in that area. That's Lexington, Kentucky, by the way. That's not Lexington, Massachusetts. It had a cross on the water tower. The school was actually a public school, but it was called a Christian school because of the demographic. You didn't have to leave the neighborhood. All Everything you needed was in that neighborhood. I think that's exclusivity. I think that's isolationism. And I think it comes from a reduction of Romans chapter 12. So here's what happens. Paul says, Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Do not over, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We love the beginnings of these sentences. We love them. Helps us judge people. Helps us remove ourselves from all, all the messiness and ugliness in the world. But we miss the second half. Cling to what is good, but overcome evil with good. It doesn't say, and therefore run away from it, and judge it, and leave it outside. And don't have anything to do with it. No, no. Cling to what is good, and overcome evil with good. You know who always amazed me is doctors. Do you know what it's called in flu season? I don't even like to go to the hospital and visit people. Doctors have no choice. I've often thought about that. This person comes into the emergency room, might have Ebola. Doctor, 
God who's going to take care of them. Willing to get messy. Willing to die. God. Willing to get messy. But we don't want to be messy. So why does Romans 12 get so reduced? Because when we don't put ourselves into the text, and we don't really read what Paul is trying to say, we miss it. We've got to read and understand. See, did you notice what Jesus said to the scribe? How do you read? This is a terrifying verse. The scribe was wrong. I'm terrified when I read scripture. Doubly terrified when I have to come and teach it. One of my favorite quotes, I said, the second you decide to go into ministry, your chances of going to heaven reduced by 50%. (laughs) How do you read it? We miss Paul. We go into Romans 12. And here's what Romans 12 is all about. Love must be sincere. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Oh my gosh. I don't even think that exists in the Bible anymore. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody if it is possible. As far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. You. And this is why I thought it was appropriate to revisit this teaching as a transitional link between what we have just studied about Paul and his theology for the last 14 weeks and what we're about to study. See, It's easy to read the next few chapters in 1 Corinthians and understand them as though Paul is suddenly abandoning all that he has said and is now opting for some pursuit of personal piety as though that's the whole point. We can't fall into that trap. We need to remember that Paul was all about imitating Christ. about how we love each other and how we serve others. How we should always exercise grace, forgiveness, and the wisdom and power of the cross and not be seduced by theology of glory and our own human wisdom and our own human power. See, that's the thing about the science that the beautiful thing Dave was saying and and, uh, the poem he read. See, that's for far too long Christianity has rejected human intelligence that's not the point a human intelligence is God given it was our fault that science is getting rid of God our fault because we didn't we didn't have an answer so it's like the alphabet A, B well we don't know what C is so that's God D, E, F, G, we don't know what it is, we'll call that God. And every year, science fills in the letters. It's our fault for ever saying that was God. Where our human wisdom becomes a problem, and this is why it's a problem right in the church, this is why it was a problem in Corinth, is because it rejects this as God's power. That's why. And it wants something completely different. 
That's the wisdom Paul hates. Not the wisdom that helps scientists. I know some of you heard this before, but I, I love retelling this. When Noah had open heart surgery, I will never forget it. That's the worst weekend of my life. But they took, there's a pericardium sac around our heart, and they took a piece of his pericardium sac and they opened his heart and they patched the hole, they put his heart back together. And I said, okay, but now there's a problem because you, you basically destroyed the pericardium sac. And the heart surgeon goes, oh, that's okay, that's just God's gift to heart surgeons. I will never forget that. I don't even think they were a Christian. They just got it. That God would do all these things that someday we'd figure out. What a beautiful story. For Paul, the health of the community and not its division is paramount to our faith. Paramount. And I think we've seen that if you've been here for the Corinthian series. The believers in Corinth were destroying the community of God. We have to keep this in the front of our minds and our hearts as we proceed into 1 Corinthians further. And if we do, I think we'll be able to see the bigger picture of what he is getting at. You see, in chapters 5 and 6, in which Paul takes on some huge ethical failures, huge, what we are going to see, though, is that his focus remains on the community at large and not so much on the individual failures themselves. You're going to see that. Romans chapter 5, which has often been used for so many things, is not even about it. Paul's desire for the individual to be restored and the community to be healed is his focus. Because that's what this is about. Restoration and healing. Not about judging and damnation. Think of it this way. If the greatest thing in the world is the love and hope that Jesus offers the world, then the greatest thing we could do for another person is to share that love and hope with them. How can we share it with them if we judge them and exclude them and build neighborhoods that they're not welcome in? Really? James Bryan Smith said, God has created a world in which we are the ones who care for one another. To put it another way, God cares for us through one another. It's hard though, right? That's hard. Because now we can't just pray for someone that needs help. We have to do something about it. We can't care for each other if we are more concerned with the letter of the law than the spirit of the law. Scott McKnight, when commenting on the parable of the Good Samaritan, writes, If we are to love God and love others, what happens when love of God as obeying the Bible, because that is part of loving God, comes into conflict with love of God as following Jesus? Jesus' answer? Loving God properly means that we will always tend to those in need whether we agree with their lives or not. 
Jesus was not against the Torah, and if he came today, he would not be against the Bible. But he is against understanding it in such a way that its fundamental teachings about loving God and others are See, Jesus did not set a table of judgment and exclusivity. His table was a place of grace and open arms where people could come to be fed, to be healed, to find hope, to find salvation, to find love, regardless of personal purity or lack thereof. I hope we will always set such a table here. You know, when Canaan Community Church first started, I prayed often that we would not create division and exclusivity because we're so concerned with being correct on the major issues or important doctrines or even about personal piety. Instead, I prayed our passion will always be on being correct about the greatest commandment, love God and love others. So I ask again, are we called to a love of the Bible? 